Look at these graduates, and I can't tell you how many times I've graduated. I graduated from high school, from college, from seminary twice, so that's four graduations, and that's more graduations than anybody needs to graduate from. I am overly educated and underqualified. Anybody feel that way? Yes, I can remember when I graduated from high school back in 1999. Okay, 1974. And I remember when I graduated from high school, I think one of the major questions I think that most graduates ask is, what's next? What do I do now? I mean, I've, I've made this accomplishment, you know, and they've given me a diploma, and now what's next? And when, you know, when you're a senior, there's kind of that pressure then to go ahead and sign, a, sign up for college and, you know, try to think about a life plan and where you're going from here and what you're going to do and what your career is and, and all of that kind of stuff. And so we have a tendency to, you know, ask, what must I do next? What is in it for me? Where am I headed with my life? And I know some of the, um, the teenagers that have graduated, I mean, they were small when I came, and now they've kind of grown up. And... It's kind of a shock to have been in a church this long to see many of these now becoming women. They were children when I came. And, and um, so it's, it's been kind of, a, it, kind, of, kind of a thrill for you, I know, as parents to watch the same thing. These kids that you brought into this world and, and you've prayed over them and you've, you've labored for them. You have invested in them and you're sending them off now. And some of you are sending them off not very far and some of you are sending your children far away. And, and some of you, you know, I know Ryan and Nick, you're having some of these issues and releasing little, little child off into the world. And so you have a tendency, what's next for them? And we have this tendency of what is next? And so we come to the passage in Acts chapter 2, begin with verse 37 through verse 41, where there are some people who ask exactly the same question, what must now I do? What is, what is next? And if you can remember asking that question, what is next? When you graduated from high school, we often have a tendency to believe, well, it's, it's some sort of college, then it's some sort of career that we think about, and we, we go to college in order to invest in a career, and then once we get a diploma from, from college, then we begin to start our career, and then at some point, maybe, maybe in college, maybe not so much so anymore because young people are marrying much later, but we eventually get asked that important question, will you marry me? And so we find a life made a spouse, and we begin a family, and we, we we gain, you know, we, we, we buy a home, we now have a mortgage, we buy automobiles, and we begin to live our lives, and pretty soon children come along, and then when children come along, you have no time for life, period, because they exhaust you, and they take up all of your time, and uh, you sort of juggle all of that, and then finally the empty nest syndrome comes, and you sort of kind of cruise to retirement, and then finally retirement comes, and you retire, and then you die. You die. I mean, is, is that what life is all about? I mean, really, is that what life is all about? Or is there more to life than that? You know, God gave us a life plan. And the life plan, for those of us who are disciples, have been given a life plan in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 and 20. And for just a moment, graduates, I want to talk to you because we often have a tendency to think that this, this life plan was given only to the disciples, but you've got to realize that there were more than just the 12 that were present when Jesus ascended to heaven and he gave them the life plan in Matthew 28 and in Acts 1.8. 
He said, go and be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And he's telling these disciples there were more than the 12, and there were many who were there. And if you think about more than just the 12, there were some who more than likely were fishermen. There were some who were lawyers, maybe doctors, maybe businessmen and women, parents, moms and dads. There was a large group of people there. And he looked at these disciples who were there, and he said, I want you to be my witnesses. So his life plan for you as a disciple, is to leverage or invest your life as a disciple, someone who personally and intimately knows Jesus as your Savior and who is the Lord of your life, and then leverage your life for the advancement of the gospel. That is, in essence, all of us who are his disciples. That is our life plan. There is no other life plan. And I think we have a tendency to think that that's a life plan for the pastor, maybe for the other pastors on staff, maybe for the deacons. That's a nice, pretty packaged thing for someone else. But the reality is, if you think about the 12 who were there in the upper room and the others who were there who received the gift of the Holy Spirit and were filled with the Holy Spirit, there were more than just the 12 who were present at that first sermon that Simon Peter preached, and they are now disciples who have been given, who have received the Holy Spirit, and they have been filled with the Holy Spirit solely for the purpose of leveraging their lives with the power of the Holy Spirit to progress the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. I don't care what your career choice is. If you're a disciple, your life plan has already been commanded by Christ. And that command is to make disciples, to invest, to leverage every aspect of your life in the proclamation and the conversion of those who do not know Christ to become personally connected to him through faith, through trust, and belief. And we see in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, the fulfillment of what Jesus has asked his disciples to do in Acts chapter 1. He told them in Acts 1, if you remember, he said, I want you guys to be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And he said, you're not going to do this in your own strength because I'm going to baptize you not with water that John baptized you with. I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and you will receive the Holy Spirit. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will be empowered with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of leveraging your life and investing your life for the gospel. That's why we are here, people, not to just live our lives for self-indulgent and self-involvement and self-fulfillment and all this selfish stuff, but we have been placed on this planet. We have been saved. We have been redeemed for the sole purpose of leveraging our lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the conclusion of this beautiful message in Acts chapter 2, we see Simon Peter actually given an invitation. And the invitation is, I think, to these people, you need to invest, you need to leverage your life, not only to become personally connected to Jesus Christ through, through trust and faith, but you also then must join us in this great commission that he's given us as his disciples. So in the conclusion of this beautiful message, we see an invitation. Now, let me just remind you where we've been through so far. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon the disciples. They have received the Holy Spirit. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, because of that, a great sound took place and God drew people to the place where they were gathered together in the upper room. And they were inquiring among themselves, what must this mean? What has happened? And no one knows the answer. And then Simon Peter, who, was, who had lost his boldness, who ran literally in fear of his life, in hiding when they arrested Jesus, who denied Christ three times, 
is now stepping forward in this humongous crowd of more than 3,000, I believe, and boldly declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he has shared the gospel with them. And he has shared with them that this, this Jesus whom they had crucified is in fact risen from the dead, has ascended to the Father, and they need to put their faith and trust in him. And upon the conclusion of that sermon, they are convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they ask, what now must we do? It's interesting that um, an old story of an old pastor one time who I read, oh, years ago, just off the top of my head, this, this pastor had given the invitation. The invitation was over, and he was down shaking hands with people at the end of the service, and somebody ran up to him and said, Pastor, Pastor, what do I need to do to, to receive Christ? He said, I'm, I'm sorry, the service is over. He said, no, what must I do to be saved? He said, sir, you can't do anything to be saved. And what we're wanting to understand as we open this text is the reality is there is nothing that we must do because it has already been done. And yet we have a responsibility because of what he has already done for us that there's a response that we must give. And so we ask this question, what must I do? God through Jesus has done all that is necessary and yet we have a responsibility then to step forward and we must respond to that which he has done. So how do I respond to that? There are six things very quickly that I want us to look at. First of all, I must realize my need. If you never realize your need for Christ and your need for forgiveness, you'll never turn to Christ for forgiveness. The people that we come in contact with must recognize and realize they have a need for forgiveness. They are sinners in need of salvation. Notice verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they heard the message that he had proclaimed and the means which is Christ. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. There is a conviction here, as we've already discussed and already discovered, that it is the Holy Spirit's responsibility to convict people of their need for Christ. It is the Spirit who convicts people of their sin. And the Holy Spirit has been at work the whole time. He's filled the disciples. They've received. They've been filled with the Spirit. He is boldly stepping forward, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And now the Spirit has convicted these who are listening that they need something beyond themselves. And he says, and they, and to the heart, and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, this convicting of the Holy Spirit caused them then to turn to Simon Peter. And as they turned to him, remember before they turned to each other, and then the disciples entered on the scene, and Simon Peter boldly declared the, the, the message and the means of salvation. But now they're turning to Simon Peter, and they're asking him then, brothers, what must we do? They are connecting with these disciples, with these 120 who are present. I can kind of envision maybe Simon Peter standing here like I'm standing before an audience, and he's got the the, 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 the orchestra and maybe the, the uh, choir behind him of the 120 who were in the upper room. And so they said, what must we do, brothers? There's a, a connection there. They're, they're relating to those who have just declared the message and the means of salvation to them. This beautiful gospel message of the, the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation or the ascension of Jesus. And they're feeling guilty because they finally realize because of the quickening of the Holy Spirit has convicted them that they are responsible for the death of Jesus. They're not just responsible for the death of Jesus because they crucified him, but because of their sin. The Bible said all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wage of that sin is death. 
What put Christ on that cross was our sin, and they realized their need for him. What must I do? I think we must be very careful as we seek to promote the gospel and proclaim the gospel to await for the convicting and the awakening of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of those who God is drawing and calling unto himself so that we give the Holy Spirit power enough to work so that they then ask us, what now do I do with what I sense in my heart I need to do? Realize my need. Number two, I need to repent of my sin. Notice in the text, verse 38, in the first part, and Peter said to them. It's interesting that Simon Peter, who has preached this message, now steps up to the plate and he sort of swings the bat and he answers the question. And let me just take a side note here and let me say to those of us who are disciples of Christ, when somebody asks, what do I need to do in order to be saved? What's my responsibility here? What do I do with this thing that you've, that you've just revealed to me? And I feel this convicting of the Spirit of God. And, and I, I, I want to step forward. I want to make a decision. Don't leave them hanging. Don't walk away. It's important for us to understand that we must ask the right questions, but in their asking that right question, we must answer that question with a, with a solid convicting of our own hearts that we know the answer to the problem. And they said to Peter, what must we do? And he said to them, those that were convicted of the Spirit and asking the question, he says, repent. Now, there's a lot of prayers out there that many pastors often lead people to pray in order to trust in Jesus as their Savior and commit to him the Lord of their lives. But very few, not very many, like to use repentance. Jesus preached a gospel of repentance. John the Baptist preached a gospel of repentance. The gospel can only be received when someone repents. Repentance simply means I'm over here, I'm living my life for myself, for my own self-gratification, for my own self-fulfillment. I'm living to please myself and my carnal nature. I love the things that God says I should hate, and I hate the things that God said I should love. And all of a sudden, I recognize my need, that Jesus is the answer, I then repent. I turn from that, and now I commit my life to loving the things that God said I should love and hating the things that God hates. You're not a Christian if you love the things that God hates and you hate the things that God loves. And there are many today that have this false understanding about their salvation and they have placed their faith and trust in Jesus for fire insurance and they have not repented of their sin. They have not turned from their carnal, selfish, damned life to a life of, of, of trusting Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord. There has to be repentance. There has to be a turning away from the old life and turning to a new life, a new heart with a new mind, with a new way of thinking, with a new lifestyle where we now love the things that God says we should love and we hate the things that God hates as well. Repentance. Saying repentance. There's a change of, of attitude now. There's a, there's a change in my actions where now I love to do the things that God has told me to do. And I, I love to not do the things that God said I should not do. Because the reality is this, this repentance is not only about things I no longer do, but it's now things I get to do. And so repentance is important. Notice every one of you should repent. 
Not just a few of you, not just one or two of you, but every one of you. And I think that is the commitment that every one of us who place our faith and trust in Christ must do. Every one of us must repent in the name of Jesus. And when we repent, we then receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. Notice, every one of you should repent in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Putting your faith and trust in the name of Jesus is putting your faith and trust in what Jesus has done on the cross of Calvary for you, where he took upon himself your sin and died in your place, thus reconciling then the debt that was accrued because of your sin against a righteous God. In other words, that word forgiveness here is an interesting word. It means that now the debt that I had that must be paid has been reconciled. It's been resolved through the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. In other words, I repent and I receive that Jesus' death on the cross where he atoned or paid for my debt against God because my sin caused a debt to happen. Now Jesus pays the debt for me and I receive him as my savior. I put my trust in him. He died for me so that I now can live through him. Repenting and receiving Jesus is critical. Step number three, I need to then reveal authenticity earlier i only have five points and i had to do this morning this morning i i told our crew back there that i had to put a six point because i had to separate these two because i think sometimes there are some denominations and some people have a tendency to want to put these two things we're about to talk to together talk about together sort of connected as one thing but i think they're two separate things and there's this authenticity that that he is calling for them to to reveal notice in the text And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. Once you repent of your sin and you receive Jesus as your Savior and commit to him the leadership of your life, you are then baptized. This word baptized means water baptism. It means immersion. It doesn't mean sprinkling. It means to be dipped under. It means to immerse, which is why we are Baptist. Because we believe in immersion following repentance and a receiving of Jesus as our Savior. We believe in conversion, baptism. You are baptized post or after you repent of your sin and receive Jesus as your Savior. Now notice in the text that baptism does not in this text or any text, if you're going to put the scriptures together, baptism isn't what saves you. It's not baptism that gives us forgiveness of sin. It is repenting of sin and receiving Jesus as our Savior and making him the Lord of our life. It is that which we then receive forgiveness. Baptism is a revelation of the authenticity of of the work of Christ in our heart and what has already transpired within us. John baptized with water. And he called for repentance. And when they repented, they declared their repentance through baptism. Repentance took place first, and then they were baptized. Jesus called for the same thing. Why do they call for this? I I want to suggest to you that baptism is what I might call a watermark. A watermark. You see, under the old covenant, the mark of authenticity was circumcision. I don't have time to get into that. I don't want to get into that. But through Abraham, through the Old Covenant, you identified people who were the people of God through circumcision. That's how you identified. That was the mark of of those who belonged to God. And now, through John's 
preaching and now through Jesus preaching and his death and his resurrection now the disciples in Matthew 28 who were commanded not only to go and to make disciples but were commanded to baptize not unto salvation but because of the watermark called baptism and now being baptized is the mark of authentic belong of authenticity of belonging to Jesus it's the watermark that's why we baptize people to identify with Christ. Christ wasn't baptized because he committed sin and needed to repent. He was baptized as a watermark to demonstrate to us now he is marking those who are his disciples who will now follow his example and they, like him, are baptized as a mark, identifying them as followers of Christ. And you will not find anywhere, it says, and we're baptized every one of you You'll not find anywhere in the New Testament a disciple who isn't baptized. It, it's, a, it's an oxymoron. It's, it's an anomaly. It's, it's not normal for someone in the New Testament, anywhere you find, that they profess faith in Jesus, but they were not baptized to authenticate, to have that baptismal mark, to identify them with Jesus, and to declare to the world of what has already taken place in their heart and their commitment to him. And so there's an authenticity about that. And so what we do when someone finally recognizes and realizes that they are a sinner and they then repent of their sin and they receive Jesus as their Savior, they put their faith and trust in him. They then publicly come forward, not to be saved, they're already saved, but in following the example of Jesus, then they are baptized as he was baptized, as a mark that from now on I am a Christ follower. Number four, they then need to receive God's gift. They need to receive God's gift. Notice, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That and is a conjunction that marks what has precededly been said to what is about to be said, and you who are under conviction will receive. This is a promise to those who were there. They heard the boom and they gathered together. God drew them there and Simon Peter boldly declared, remember they thought they were drunk. I said, no, we're not drunk. The, the Spirit has come. We have received the promise of the Spirit of God from Joel and Ezekiel and we've been, we have received the Spirit and we were full of the Spirit. And if you can imagine these, these followers of Jehovah, they were there because they were Judy, Judaizers. They were, they were Jewish in their faith. They were not all Israelites, but they were there also because they embraced the God of Yahweh from other denominations. It was an international gathering who were there in Jerusalem. And, and if you can imagine, they said, well, the Holy Spirit has come, but I thought he was, he was promised to us through Joel and through, through the prophets. Do we get to, do we, do we get this, this promise as well? And he says, yes, this promise is for you, who Israelites, who belong to Jehovah God, who worship him. This is for you. But notice also, this is also a promise for you and for your children. And notice he says, and for all who are far off. There were some who were Israelites who were not all gathered in Jerusalem, obviously, and others in other parts of the world who were Israelites, who worshipped Jehovah God, who understood the God of the Old Testament was their God. And this promise is for them who are present, for their descendants, for other Israelites who are scattered all over the world. But notice this, this, this promise is a gift. It's a gift. 
is something that is given to you based upon something that God has done for them. It's not something they could earn. But notice he says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Not only for you who are here, is God promised to give you this gift. Not only for those of our, our descendants, our, 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 our people who are spread all over the world. He's promised to give us this beautiful person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It has is, it is been given, it's been promised, and he is giving it to us. But it's also for everyone. For everyone. What everyone, everyone who the Lord calls to himself. God is in the process of calling men and women and boys and girls unto himself, drawing them, as we saw two Sundays ago, drawing them unto himself so that he might save them from their sin and seal them with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he is calling them. And when he calls them, then they call on him for salvation. If you remember in Simon Peter's message, he said, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In other words, he's saying you can receive God's beautiful gift when you receive his son Jesus as your savior and commit to him the lordship of your life. And so here we see this reception of God's spirit who was already at work and they're convicting and in their conversion process. And he's going to be involved in the commitment that they're about to make to him. But he's saying this gift of salvation and this gift of the Spirit is for you. It's for everyone. For God so loved the... What? For God so loved the... One more time. For God so loved the... You know, when you sit in a traffic light next time, and there's a four-way stop... And you're sitting there and you see, just watch people driving by for a minute. I think sometimes we have this tendency to think that this beautiful gift of salvation and this beautiful gift of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit is only for me. We sometimes do. And we don't see it as a gift that has been given to us so that we can then in turn give it away. But this beautiful gift of the uh, of the person of Jesus and the person of the Spirit of God is, 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 a, is a salvation gift for all who he is calling unto himself and then who respond by calling on him as well. You know, this guy in, in, in Acts chapter 818, a guy named Simon, he uh, saw the disciples laying hands on people and they were receiving the Holy Spirit and he came up to the disciples and said, hey, I want to buy that power. How can I purchase that? How can I leverage that? How can I make money off of that? And I said, you can't. Why? Because it's a gift that comes through us trusting in Jesus as our Savior. We then receive the Holy Spirit, which is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Number five, we need to recognize the urgency then. Notice this beautiful invitation that we see in Simon Peter. There's, there's a sense of urgency in these words in verse 40. He said, and with many other words, he bore witness. This, this message, you know, some of you might say, oh, pastor, you know. Well, I was, I was at a sin conference here this weekend on Friday afternoon. And uh, um, 
David Platt was on stage with Kevin Ezell. David Platt is the International Mission Board president, and Kevin Ezell is the president uh, for North American Mission Board, and they were kind of playing back and forth each other, and they razzed each other a lot. And, and Kevin Ezell kind of joked about David Platt because he's kind of long-winded like my son was last Sunday. Did you notice that? He preached longer than I did and than I do. But I thought it was good. But anyway... We have, we have a, a family of long-winded preachers. Anyway, Kevin Ezell said something to David Platt after he joked him about the vest he was wearing. You know, he said, hey, Ezell, we're not having a flood. You didn't wear a life, a life vest today, Pastor Mark. And then Kevin Ezell turned back and said, well, maybe you can, you know, say a few words now so that you can cut a little bit on that hour and a half sermon that you, that you normally preach. You ever listen to David Platt? He's a long-winded preacher. He does conferences for... Um, that, that you can go to, and they're, they're, they're hours. You know, if, if you go to China and you, you preach confined in a small space designed for 50 people, and there's normally 150 because they have to, they have to worship, you know, in confined spaces, and you, you preach a 45-minute message, they'll say, no, 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 you, you need to preach more. I've never been asked that by any of us here. Anyway, long story short, his message wasn't this short. There was more to Simon Peter's message than what is simply recorded. And so because of that, we notice, he says, and with many other words, he bore witness. He testified. And, and I looked at that, and I recognized the urgency that unless we bear witness, how can they hear, and how will they be saved? And yet most of us are silent with our testimony. Well, I live in Wichita. Big deal. There are thousands of lost people in Wichita. And we must bear witness. We must testify of the transformational work of the Spirit of God when He convicted us of our sin and converted us to faith in Christ. And if we are not bearing witness, as Simon Peter does here, as an example, the first example right off the bat, after having received and been filled with the Holy Spirit, he is bearing witness of the gospel of Jesus, this beautiful work of the life, death, resurrection, and the exaltation or ascension of Jesus. And he's pointing to Jesus as the only means by which they can be saved. And we must bear witness to our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, as we leverage our lives. Who knows where you guys are going to go to college, who you're going to run into, who you're going to meet, where careers you're going to be involved in. And God is, is asking you to leverage your life as you go out and leverage that life and invest in this kingdom concept in the gospel of Jesus to know that these connections and these, these relationships are not by accident. They are divine, sovereign works of God where he is connecting you with lost people so that you can then bear witness of the gospel of Jesus because he's drawing people unto himself. And unless we, like Simon Peter, bear witness of the gospel, how can they hear and how will they be saved? Because we are the means by which he projects the gospel. And I, I, I question that often because I am so frail and so weak and so wimpy and so all of those other things. And I'm not dependable, and neither are you. And yet it's up to us to bear witness and to testify about Jesus. And with many other words. He, he spoke longer than just what we have recorded here. And notice, and he continued to exhort him. 
He continued to exhort them. That word exhort to me means pleading. He wanted them to be saved. And I think sometimes we're not bearing witness because, quite frankly, we don't really care. We say we care. But if we cared, wouldn't we do something about it? And yet we don't. He really cared. He is pleading for them. He is imploring them. He is exhorting them. I'm not sure what happened in this this thing. Some believe there was a discussion back and forth, and he was exhorting them. He was pleading with them. And I see my father when I was a small child, many times, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, invitation, you know, the, 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 the stanzas being sung over and over again as he's holding out his hand and pleading for people to respond to the call of salvation. And yet we're so quick to give up to write people off and to declare them unworthy of receiving the gospel. And then notice saying to them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Man, that's a word for today, isn't it? Save yourselves. He's warning them here in this exhortation. Save yourselves. Now, if you think about their culture and their generation, these are people who worship Jehovah. They are there because they are religious. This is not a pagan, sinning, you know, prostitution or pornography or alcoholics or drug addicts. These are religious people he's talking to. And I think we need to understand that this religious culture that we have in America is a crooked culture. And we are religious without a relationship with Jesus. And he says to them, save yourselves. He's warning them because the direction of the path they're taking in their lives, they are doomed and they are damned to eternal hell because they are following the wrong generation the wrong culture and then number six i need need to respond immediately there's an immediate response he doesn't delay there's an immediate response when you have a beautiful opportunity to present the gospel to someone and and they show interest and the spirit's working you need to we need to invite them to trust jesus we need to encourage them to to turn to christ notice it says in this response that was immediate verse 41 so those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3000 souls so those notice that so those the word those doesn't mean everybody doesn't mean everybody There's more than 3,000 people there. Not everybody trusted Jesus and repented of their sin. Not everybody. And not everybody that you witness to is going to get saved either. But there's some who will. There are those that will respond. Our responsibility is simply to share. And then as we share, the Spirit of God draws them. And as He draws them, some, there will be those who will. So 3,000 are the those, and those who received, they responded favorably to the gospel message and to the invitation of trusting in Jesus, and they were 
baptized. They demonstrated the authenticity of their faith by following Jesus and being water baptized. They then now possessed the water mark that identified them now openly and publicly without being ashamed at all that I now forevermore am a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And they were added to their number. You think about that. There were only 120 in the upper room. There were 120. And now, some were added about 3,000. Some were about 3,000. But notice the word souls. Souls. What is a soul? It's that eternal spiritual element that resides within every human being that is not physical, it's eternal. It's your soul. And we are leveraging, we are investing our lives for souls. For souls. Because people without Christ are eternally doomed and damned to spend an eternity in hell without Jesus. Let me close with this interesting story. I think I've told it a couple of years ago, but some of you have slept since then. Some of you are new to our church. It's about a pastor who talks about a dream that he had. And, and in this dream, he's standing before uh, the, the precipice of hell. And it's sort of eye level. And he begins to look out and he sees this endless sea of flames. Just flames. And as he's looking and just astounded by what he sees, he sees someone walking on the flames, and they're walking over here, and they're picking someone up by the head of their hair. They're looking at their faces and dropping them down. And then he goes over here, and he does the same thing. And then he goes over here, and he does the same thing. And he watches for a minute. And then finally, curiosity gets the best of him. And he says, hey, mister, what? What are you doing? He stopped for a minute, looked at the man, and he says, I'm looking for the preacher that told me I wouldn't be in this place. Hell is real. And people without Jesus will spend eternity doomed and damned for their sin against God unless we leverage and invest our lives for the gospel. Yes, they are responsible to trust Jesus. But we have a responsibility who know Jesus to leverage everything, not just the pastor, not just the pastors, all of us. Every one of us in here have been given a life plan to know Jesus intimately and personally, and once we become a disciple of his, now to leverage and invest our lives 100% for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because souls are at stake. And men and women and boys and girls are dying all over Wichita today without Jesus. And their souls are eternally damned because we have not done our job, Emmanuel Baptist Church. Let's pray.